five weeks ago, my family was on vacation and there were some things that happened that changed kind of everything that was going to be like in order and things that we needed to do. And so because of that, um, I needed to buy a, a pair of dress slacks. All right. And so um, one day while we were driving along, my wife pointed out, hey, there's a store right over there that you could go and buy some dress slacks. I'm like, yep, put that in the mind. That sounds great. Like, I feel like I need a nap right now. We're still heading back, got the whole family, but I will come back and get these dress slacks in a couple days. And so a couple days go by and it's now time to go and buy those dress slacks. And so I pull up my phone, GPS, just to make sure that I still know how to get there, that that's the one that I'm thinking about. And sure enough, it is. I'm like, all right, so I'm ready to go buy my pants. My son's like, let me ride with you. I'm like, all right, come on with me. And so 4.9 miles, approximately 12, um, 12 minutes is what it says that it would take to get there. So we take off and go and we are approaching all the stores, except as I'm driving up, I'm realizing these are not the stores that I was thinking of. Like I totally know the group of stores here because we've passed by these multiple days in a row, but I'm not positive that we're in the right place anymore. And so we pull off and I pull out my GPS and it tells me, yes, I am now 24 minutes away from my destination. And so I go back and I look and I'm like, yep, you know what? One of the days we had gone a different route and that's why that looked where I like where I was supposed to go. But in that moment, as I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, I was so sure that I was going in the right direction but I was wrong. Now, that also made me think about some of the progressive commercials that came out during football season. And I don't know if you saw any of these, but they had to do with the red challenge flag. Okay. Now, if you have no idea what that means in the National Football League, coaches are given a red challenge flag that a couple times they're allowed to use that if they feel like the referees missed something and they want them to go back and check the play again to see if what they called was correct or not. And so Progressive took this and said, all right, let's take these everyday moments that we would like to pull out the challenge flag. And so there's things such as a dad saying, I did not scream when I saw that spider. And the son said, oh, you did. You screamed like a girl. And so they have like this argument kind of or disagreement and they pull out the challenge flag and they go back and you can hear the father screaming very loudly. Or they use another one where there is now a cat on the table and these two men are looking going, how did that cat get there? And one of the men is like, I know I closed the door. It's like, no, I don't know. And so they pull out the challenge flag and realize, nope, the door did not get closed the night before. And that is how the cat is there. Now they got to figure out what to do because they're not cat people. There's another commercial um, that has to do with sweet potatoes. There's a family all around and there's a grandma and a mom and a daughter. And the grandmother asks, could you pass the sweet potatoes? And to which the daughter's like, oh, we don't have sweet potatoes. And mom's like, I told you to get the sweet potatoes. She's like, no, it was not on my list. And so they pull out the red challenge flag and realize it never got written down on the list. And she has to eat a little bit of that humble pie saying, I'm sorry, I didn't write that on the list. So the red challenge flag was helpful in that moment. Or the other one has to do with life jackets. With this couple who is out, about ready to go down a river with the canoes or the kayaks or whatever that is. They're like, we need the life jackets. And she says, well, you pack them. He said, no, you pack them. And so they pull it out. And her words at the very end are, my favorite words in that whole video or that whole review is that you said, obviously, I will not forget to pack the life jackets. And I wonder, like, how many times in life would we love to have that red challenge flag that we could throw it out there and go back and look and go, look, I was right, except for the times that we're not. <laughs> like, what do you think about those times that you throw the challenge flag and like, oh, I was so sure about what I thought or what I said, but I was wrong. 
And we're doing a new series for the next three weeks um, entitled Look Again, like expecting the true Savior. And we're taking another look at Jesus because sometimes we can actually have the wrong view of who he is. Like without even knowing it, we miss what was right in front of us. And so I want to take you back to what it was like to be a first century Jewish person, all right, in the time of Jesus. And if you've seen The Chosen, if you've seen some other movies, you kind of get a glimpse of that. Hey, this is what it would have felt like to be one of the Jewish people in that area. And so most of them lived in the area of Palestine. All right, so that's right on the eastern border of the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe you've heard of places like Galilee or Judea or the Decapolis or Samaria. And all of those were part of this area called Palestine, which at most was 170 miles from north to south and 90 miles from east to west. So just a little bit bigger than the state of Vermont. All right, that is this area of Palestine, and it was very diverse with the people who were there because you had Jews, and you had Romans, and you had Greeks, and you had Arabs, and you had Africans and Egyptians, and you had just this uh, group of people that either lived there or traveled through there because this area was a major land trade route. All right, not a port because there wasn't this big city where boats would come in. And this area didn't have major natural resources that, hey, we can sell all these gems and things like that. But in this area, most people worked with agriculture in some way. They were farmers. They were raising the food that they needed. Some of them were small business owners, all right, that I'm, I'm operating this. Or they learned a trade. And that's what they did to be able to make their living and be able to care for other people while they were able to, again, provide for their family. And so many people were hard workers during this time frame. You had some people who ended up becoming tax collectors. Some people would be priests or rabbis. And if we're talking kind of in the religious area, you need to know that there was this thing called the synagogue, kind of like our churches that we think of today. But that was the major building in the city. Like that is where people went to worship. But that could also be used for a schoolroom or a courtroom, or for political settings. And so this building, the synagogue, was one that was so important in their areas. Well, we're talking about religions, like because there were so many people of different, you know, um, ethnicities and where they came from, that there were religions were just aplenty, and political intrigue and violence were the norm. So that is just what's going on as these Jewish people are living in this area. Uh, a lot of them spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, but Greek was becoming the common language for everyone. There were about 4 million Jews that lived in this area, but not just in Jerusalem, but again, spread out and, and even outside of Palestine. Why were they so spread out? Because of these things called the exile that we've talked about from the Old Testament. You know what? At one time, Assyria came in and one time Babylon came in and they took the people out of the land and then as you keep reading, there are different moments that people come back into the land and they settle different areas. And so you have these Jewish people living in many different areas. And under current circumstances, where they were at the moment is that they absolutely hated that they were being ruled by the Roman government, by this Roman empire. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me for a long time when I just kind of heard, okay, the Roman Empire, is that like a little bit bigger than Italy or something like that? Well, it's not. In fact, here's a map of what the Roman Empire was like during the time of Jesus, all right? You can see all that area within the black dotted lines. That is what was being ruled by this Roman government. And so you see Europe and North Africa and the Middle East. And so the Palestine, they're in Palestine and the Jewish people, they hated 
that this Roman domination was over them. They hated that they were being ruled by Herod. They despised the oppressive taxes, which sometimes would even be up to 50% of what they brought in. They hated that they had to give it as a tribute to Caesar because a lot of people saw him as a god and they didn't worship Caesar. And so they hated doing that and they hated giving these taxes because it was a symbol of their slavery. Now, if you ask most people from the outside, hey, what do you think of the Israelites over here, the Jewish people? They'd be like, man, that's just like this backwater Roman province full of cantankerous people with these strange religious beliefs. They they cling to these customs, and yet they really can't run themselves. Like, they have to be governed by outside rule. And the Jewish people, spiritually, they had not heard the prophetic voice of God for about 400 years. Like we call it the silent years, kind of in between Malachi and Matthew, but they're listening, God, what is it that you want from us? And what they're holding on to is that God had promised there was going to be a Messiah, that he was going to send this Messiah that would come and relieve them from the oppression that they were feeling. They were expecting this Messiah to be someone who came in and conquered for them. And so they had been crying out for centuries, and now they are ready for their freedom and on the scene comes Jesus, and he claims to be the Messiah. And so these people who had been expecting the Messiah, they can even go back to Old Testament scriptures and seeing he is fulfilling some of these prophecies about what the Messiah would be like, about his birth, the fact that he is from the line of David, that he speaks in parables, that he has been anointed by God's Spirit. You can tell something is different about him. He's able to heal. He brings freedom to people. He is righteous, and as other people around him, he makes them righteous. He brings justice. He brings peace. He is called king. And so Jesus has been teaching and leading for about three years, and there begins to get this pretty large following after him. And again, they've heard his teachings. They've seen God in a new light, and they've watched these healings and miracles, and they're thinking, it's almost time. What we've been waiting for is right here, the Messiah. He is coming to free us. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 21. All right, that's kind of the setting for what's been going on. Matthew chapter 21, the events that we're reading right now are what a lot of churches are going to look at next week on Palm Sunday before Easter, okay? And so as we're looking at this, this event happens one week before Jesus rises from the dead. All right, we call it the triumphal entry here. Um, It is a text that is written about in all four of the Gospels. All right, the authors felt that this was important that you understand what's going on here, the beginning of this final week. All right, and so I want to just see what again was going on as these Jewish people were ready for their Messiah to come in. All right, so let's read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 21 of Matthew. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once... You will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Well, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them, and then Jesus sat on them. 
So as we're reading here, Jesus says, hey, I want you as disciples to go into town and to get this donkey. If you read in Mark and Luke, it tells us that this donkey, this colt has never been ridden before. All right. And so the disciples go in and in Matthew, we read that Jesus had said, if you go in and anyone asks you, this is the answer you are to give. And again, in Mark and Luke, it tells us that a group actually did ask. And we learned that that group was actually the owners. Hey, what are you needing this for? And so they give him the answer and said, yes, go ahead and take it. So we read all of that from this text. And so the disciples, they obey every word that Jesus has said. And what Matthew even includes for us is that if you're looking at Messiah, you're looking at fulfilled prophecy, this again adds to it that Jesus knew what he was doing. And so he fulfills prophecy about the Messiah. So let's keep reading in verse 8, all right? We have that they've put this uh, cloak on the, on the donkey and Jesus is sitting on him. It says, a very, loud, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. All right, so we've got this crowd. Why is there a crowd? John reminds us the reason there's a crowd is because people are here for the Passover celebration, all right, people are coming in, the Jewish people are coming to celebrate the remembrance of God delivering them from the Egyptians. So everyone is coming to Jerusalem for that. That's why the crowd is here, and now Jesus is here. And so some of them are taking palm branches, all right? They're taking these palm branches. It's not just because, okay, we need something, let's cut this off the tree, and that's what we've got. You see, the symbol of the palm branch meant this idea of victory and triumph, it's almost kind of like how when we have flags at 4th of July, the patriotism, hey, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. When people were waving, when people were setting these on the road, they were saying, Jesus, you are our hero. We are excited about this. But some of them took cloaks and put it on the ground. And the reason for that is it says that this is submission. This is an allegiance that I am being bought into this vision. I am being uh, bought in to this person, to this cause. And it's not the only time that we ever read this in the Bible. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's one of the kings of Judah. His name is Jehu, and he's anointed king. And in 2 Kings 9.13, it says this, They hurried and they took their cloaks and they spread them under him on the bare steps. And then they blew the trumpet, and they shouted, Jehu is king. So like as this crowd is here, and they are shouting, and they are waving these things, they're laying them on the ground, you can hear that they're like, this is our Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. Let's read verse 9. It says this, The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so people are shouting these praises. In fact, Luke says they're shouting these praises because of all the miracles that they've seen. The miracles of him healing and feeding large crowds, having power over the demonic and over nature. And in fact, not long before this, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And so this crowd is cheering and praising God and they're yelling, Hosanna, which literally means save or save us, which Jesus' name means the Lord saves. But the entire time they're like, will you be the one to save us? Will you rescue us? As you read this text and you get the context, do you hear the expectations of the Jewish people here? And so then we read verses 10 and 11. And it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
And so again, you have people then going, okay, what's going on? All this commotion. We don't read about the Romans being like nervous about this. Yes, there's a big crowd, but there's no swords. They're not coming in on a military horse. It's this donkey and just people are, are, are shouting and excited. But we don't read that. But boy, I tell you, the Pharisees don't like it. If you read this text in Luke, the, the Pharisees, they come up to Jesus. They're like, you need to quiet all your disciples down, all your followers down. And this is where Jesus says, um, if they're quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. Like they're going to praise me because this is who I am. You also read in Luke how Jesus begins to weep over Jerusalem. As he looks out over them and he knows their hearts, he knows what is about to happen in a few years. All these things like his heart is broken for the people that they've missed it. And even in um, Mark, we read how Jesus goes to the temple, just kind of looks around, and this is the night before he clears it out from all the money changers. That wasn't some incident that just happened sporadically. He sees what's going on. It's like, again, they missed it. You see, the Jewish people, they were hailing Jesus as their military hero. But one week later, when some of them realized that that's not what he's going to do, they turn against him. They call him a blasphemer. They decide, we think that he deserves to be crucified. Like Jesus, as Messiah, is king. And he continues to be king. But it's not the way that they thought it was going to be. They missed it. And sometimes we can sit here and look and go, but it was so obvious. Like, look at all these scriptures. Look at the things that we're pointing to. How did they miss the type of Messiah he was going to be? You know, it's, it's easy to see something when you're only looking for that thing. I mean, sometimes we can be looking for something when something else, the real thing is right in front of us, but we miss it because we're not looking for it. And that's what's happened here to the Jewish people. Oh, they saw these scriptures about what the Messiah was going to be like, but if they would have looked again, they would have also seen these verses that talked about how the Messiah would be rejected, how he would be betrayed, how he would be falsely accused, and he would stand silent. He would be hated without cause. He would be crucified without breaking any bones. How there would be a side, uh, his side would be pierced. They would see scriptures about how his garments would be gambled for and how he would pray for his enemies, how he would be buried with the rich, and how he would be the sacrifice for sin. They missed all this because they were looking for that which they wanted, or that which they thought they needed. And again, I don't want to be too harsh, because even the disciples who had been following Jesus missed it. At the end of this section in John about the triumphal entry, John writes this in 1216. says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him? So they even missed it until after he was glorified. So maybe you think, okay, he comes back to life. You get all that. They still miss it. So in Acts chapter one, verse six, like right about the time he's about to go back up into heaven, it says, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like again, they still don't have all the puzzle pieces put together. And so Jesus was king, but he was not the type of king that they were expecting. They needed to look again. Like Jesus' kingdom is not completely of this world. Oh, there's aspects here, but his kingdom is not of this world. In fact, when they tried to make him king, he would withdraw from the crowds. And so Jesus, he knew that we needed to be saved 
but it would not be a temporary saving that again, then we would be in slavery yet again in a few years. Instead, Jesus came to save us once for all time. And so the Jewish people, they needed this red challenge flag because they missed what was right in front of them. They saw what they wanted to see. They needed to look again. But again, as I talk about that, maybe the same thing applies for us. Sometimes we need to take a step back and we need to look again at who Jesus is. Because even in today's society, there's some different wrong views about Jesus. And today I want to look at four of them real quick. Four wrong views of how people view Jesus. And maybe you have at one time or you're currently in one of these viewpoints. The first would be this, is that Jesus never lived. Jesus, nah, he never lived. Like he is completely made up. I don't believe that Jesus ever lived. I just think it's something that people want to believe in. Can I tell you? That even if you don't want to go to the Bible, okay? Because again, if you're going to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus and you're like, hey, the Bible says so, okay? Like I get that that may not be the spot to start. If you went from historical context outside of the scriptures, there's a lot of things you would know about a man named Jesus from Nazareth. In fact, when uh, Lee Strobel was writing his book, The Case for Christ, and he's interviewing all these different um, gurus in their area, he was talking to someone named Edwin uh, Yamauchi. He said, what would we know about Jesus if there was no scripture whatsoever. And this is what was said. Even without any biblical writings, we would know that first, Jesus was a Jewish teacher. Second, many people believed that he performed healings and exorcisms. Third, some people believed he was the Messiah. Fourth, he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fifth, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Sixth, despite his shameful death, His followers, who believed he was still alive, spread beyond Palestine so that there were multitudes of them in Rome by 64 AD. And seventh, all kinds of people from the cities and the countryside, men and women, slave and free, they worshiped him as God. Now, if you can set any kind of bias aside and just go, I want to look to find out, did Jesus really live? There is enough historical evidence that would say, yes, he did. And you can choose to believe that he didn't believe, that he never lived. But that whole saying about ignorance being bliss, you're still wrong. Like You're wrong. And so history tells us that Jesus actually did live. So that's one wrong viewpoint of him. Some people will give you that. Okay, I believe that Jesus lived. But the second one, I don't know about this idea. Jesus isn't the son of God. Like that's another viewpoint. I believe that he lived, but he's not the son of God. Like that's a crutch that people have kind of laid upon. This idea that the Bible uh, writers, they exaggerated. Yes, he was a good man. He was a good teacher, but he wasn't really the son of God. That's a viewpoint that some people have. Maybe you have it right now. Can I tell you, and I don't have time right now, but I can tell you that there's all sorts of things that have been done with the scriptures as far as looking into the historical accuracy of it, comparing it to other historical documents that we have, the amount of scripture that we have versus other things that are never questioned as to whether this is real. And then not just is it real, but would it have been recorded accurately for us? The answer is yes. The things that have been written are very much accurate that we have in the word of God. But sometimes people go, okay, but it's accurate. But like Jesus, he didn't really know what he was saying. Like he was a little bit crazy or he just said something and people took, oh, that means he's the son of God. And so they took it farther than what he meant. Can I tell you, medically and circumstantially, the evidence does not point to that. It points to the fact that Jesus knew what claims he was stating. 
He said, I am the Son of God. And a lot of times when he did miracles, like there were times that it was just to, to feed someone or to heal someone, but there are other times that he's teaching a lesson. He's like, hey, so you'll understand this, so you'll know that who I am, let me do this. And he does those things to back up his point. So again, you may have this idea that Jesus isn't the Son of God, but if you do research into it, it comes away saying that that statement is not true. It is a wrong viewpoint of Jesus. Some people will give you, I get that he lived, and I get that he's the Son of God, but this is their viewpoint. Number three, I don't need Jesus. I don't need him. I get that that's there, but like he works for some people, but like I can work out even the difficult times in my life. Like I'm good enough. I'm independent. I can figure this out and I'm able to work through these things. Like life for me is fine. I can tell you Jesus wants more than fine for your life. But even if you're there, life for me is fine. I can tell you when I was driving to the place that I thought the store was, I thought I was right the entire time. And there again, those arguments are things that you may hold on to going, I know I said this, I know I said this, and all of a sudden you find out you're wrong. You can have this belief that, man, I don't think Jesus is something I need in my life, and you're still wrong. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, like it says, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's only Jesus. In fact, and Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life. And so that idea that I don't need Jesus, is that based on feelings? Is that based on your own pride, the own I can do it myself? Or have you actually taken a look to see where doing things myself leads me? Or thought about long-term, where does this mean? Like if I really do believe this, what are my beliefs founded on? I would tell you that Jesus is still the Savior that every one of us needs. Now, those three wrong viewpoints of Jesus are usually for people who don't believe in Him in some capacity. The fourth one is often held by people who do believe in Him, but this would be the wrong viewpoint, that Jesus is who I want Him to be. Jesus is who I want him to be. Now, we wouldn't use those words most of the time, but like sometimes when we're talking about our Jesus, we like aspects of him. But there's other parts that, eh. Or sometimes we even like the idea of Jesus more than him himself. And so when we look at things like Savior, oh, I like that because I can't do that myself. Or he's love and forgiveness. Or he's gracious. He's mercy. He's peace. The fact that he wants me, I have a place within him. Like all of those things are 100% true. But if we're not careful, there's also other things we can miss if that's the only Jesus that we hold on to. Because there's also scripture that tells us he's the almighty. That he is holy. That he is just. That he is sovereign. And in his own words, Jesus says that there will be a cost to follow. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and you must follow me. Can I ask you, your view of Jesus, has it changed your life at all? Like following Jesus, the true Jesus, has it changed your life at all? Or has he basically become fire insurance, but your life doesn't look any different? Let me ask you, in your life, is Jesus your king that you are following after? Or is he your genie that he does what you ask him to do? 
Do you obey because He's worthy, because you love Him? Or do you come to church for a couple hours a week because it makes you feel good and, hey, I've done that which I'm supposed to do, and I'll think about Him next Sunday at this time as well? I get even saying that nicely, that can sound a little bit harsh, but Jesus didn't come to be a Savior that we might partially follow. He didn't come so that, ah, you can have life to the little bit. He came to set us free, to set us free from sin and that which has entangled us, that which maybe we don't even know about. And so as we find Him, as we follow Him, it's not a hobby or a game. It's something that we do with our entire lives, all wrapped up in following after Him. And so if we're to throw the challenge flag and take a step back and just look at our view of Jesus, are we right or are we wrong? Are we in this area where, yeah, I didn't think He really is there? And if your heart today even is like, okay, you've at least intrigued me, we would love to sit down with you to be able to show you scriptures, not opinions, scriptures and outside historical data to show that Jesus really did live and he claimed to be the son of God and he had things to back that up. Or maybe today it's more than intellectual and you're like, I am ready for Jesus to be my savior. Like I don't want to do this on my own. And if that's you at any point while I'm still talking during announcements afterwards, we would love for you to go to the prayer room. It can happen today. I want him. I want this freedom that he came to give. And for a lot of us who choose to follow Jesus, we could look again one more time and go, am I following the correct Jesus? Am I really giving God's word its place? And am I listening to who he is and loving him with the entirety of my heart? Because if so, that's when God does some pretty amazing things in our lives and he does it through us. Jesus is who he says he is. So let's look again at that and let's love him well. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you sent Jesus way before we even knew that we needed him. Uh, I am thankful that you are the one that gives life to the full. God, I'm thankful that you're the one that washes us clean and gives us a new beginning. Father, I'm thankful that then you don't just leave us here by ourselves, but your spirit is inside of us and we can live in that power. God, I'm thankful that you do love us and that you're gracious and full of forgiveness. We also worship you as the one who is holy and just and almighty. God, I just pray for our hearts and the words that were said uh, that you wanted us to know this morning. And I pray that maybe if there's something that we need to learn or something that about our lifestyle that needs to change, or maybe we were encouraged and just wanting to continually follow after you. God, I pray that you do what only you can do. Father, we love you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.